And now Pastor will come and give the message. Could we please turn in our Bibles once again to chapter 3, John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 22, again in the Pew Bible, that's page 1223. Toby, I think you'll find if you're in the two front seats, no, they actually much better um, angle, yeah, exactly. Matter geometry. Perhaps, like some of you, I grew up hearing the voice of the sports announcer, Jim McKay. Remember him, Jim McKay? On Saturday afternoons, especially rainy Saturday afternoons, when rain kept me indoors, I would tune in to the ABC Wide World of Sports. And the introduction to that show was both exciting and memorable. It was set to a musical fanfare with kettle drums and trumpets and a video montage of sports clips. As Jim McKay announced, spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sport, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, the human drama of athletic competition. This is ABC's Wide World of Sports. Now, if you remember that show, you will also remember that as Jim McKay said the words, the agony of defeat, there was a ski jumper who was careening off of the jump as he slid and crashed on that curved jump that was meant to propel him in the air. This was the human drama of athletic competition. While many of today's so-called woke parents will disagree. Competition in athletics is very important. In athletics, competition causes us to excel, to push ourselves to achieve our very best. In the area of business and industry, competition is also essential. It is competition that causes manufacturers to produce the very best product. It is competition that causes sellers to offer those products at the lowest prices. Imagine if there were no competition in business and we left it to the government to make telephones. Do you think we would have cell phones or or smartphones? No, we would still be using those phones that are nailed to the wall, and you got to crank them up and, and shout into that plastic funnel, right? Or you'd have to climb the pole like Mr. Douglas on Green Acres. There are many areas where competition is helpful and important, but there is one area where competition doesn't belong in the church. Today, John the Baptist will re-enter the picture. And it is he who will make clear that competition doesn't belong in the church. As we will see, there's a problem 
among some of John's disciples. They are his disciples because they are continuing to assist John with his baptizing ministry. They will go to John and tell him that there's a newcomer, Jesus of Nazareth. And he too is baptizing and he's attracting more people than John. And they don't like this at all. They're jealous. And so they go to John to voice their disapproval. But as we will see, John the Baptist will help them to set things, to see things from a different and proper perspective. They are looking at ministry from a worldly perspective, from a competitive perspective. But as John will instruct them and us, that we are to conduct our efforts in ministry from a heavenly perspective. Let's go, please, to John chapter 3, verse 22, where our author, the Apostle John, writes this, as he sets the scene for this passage. Verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. We begin with a time stamp. After these things. This refers to the events which occurred during Jesus' visit to Jerusalem. He was in Jerusalem for the Passover. And it was during this time that Jesus cleansed the temple as he drove the merchants and money changers out of that sacred space. While in Jerusalem, he taught the people in and around the temple area, and while there, he performed many miracles. The disruption at the temple and his attraction of many people, as he taught and performed miracles, his attraction of many people also attracted the attention of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. And it is one of those members of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, who went to Jesus likely to challenge him, perhaps even to correct him. But it is Jesus who corrects Nicodemus. Nicodemus was under the impression you had to earn your way to heaven. But Jesus says to Nicodemus that the only way to see heaven is if you are born again, and what? Born from above, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says also to Nicodemus, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And as we discussed, Jesus must, it is a divine imperative, he must be lifted up on the cross. And he must also be lifted up in our hearts. He must be lifted up, he must be exalted. And so, after these things, Jesus and his disciples, quote, came into the land of Judea. Actually, while they were in Jerusalem, 
they already were in the land of Judea, the southern region of Israel. But what is meant by this report is that they left the city of Jerusalem in order to go out into the countryside of Judea, into the more rural areas. And as they do that and remove themselves from the city, we are told that Jesus did two things. He remained with them, meaning his disciples, Jesus' disciples, and secondly, he baptized. Regarding the first, the NIV says he spent time with them. John does not elaborate, John the Apostle, does not elaborate on what occurred during this time that Jesus remained with his disciples. But it's easy to surmise. He continued to teach them the truths of the kingdom. He laid out the vast differences between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. The amount of time they spent together for this instruction is not given, but it is probably a period of several months. The second detail is that during this time, Jesus baptized. It is surprising that our author does not elaborate on this. If it were not for this verse, and another verse we'll see in a moment, we would not know that Jesus' ministry included baptism. Here's why. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus' ministry included teaching the people. He taught with authority and not like the scribes. We know that his ministry included the miraculous healing of the people. But the three synoptic gospels make no mention of Jesus baptizing. Unfortunately, John does not describe or explain Jesus' baptism. And this is likely because John's main goal is to focus on the inappropriate and competitive nature of John the Baptist's disciples who are upset that Jesus is baptizing. But let's ask this question. Why was Jesus baptizing? What did it represent? If it was similar to John's, and John's baptism came first, if it was similar to John's, it was a baptism of repentance. John offered a baptism of repentance in order to prepare for the Messiah's coming. This cleansing baptism was done to prepare oneself to meet the coming Messiah, Christ the King. But now that the Messiah has arrived and Jesus was offering his own baptism, it is unclear if and how the baptism Jesus offered may have changed. We would think that the baptism offered by Jesus occurred after meeting him, that is, after believing in him, one would be baptized. But we don't know, we're not told. But while we're not offered the details about the baptism conducted by Jesus, we can infer the following. Whatever it represented, it was certainly meant to 
foreshadow and anticipate the baptism that would be offered after Christ's death and resurrection. The baptism that we know today, Christian baptism, could not be offered at this early point in Jesus' ministry. Remember, he's just starting his ministry now. The baptism that we know today could not happen until Jesus completed his earthly ministry, which according to the divine plan required he must be lifted up on the cross and rise from the grave. Only with those events in view can those who put their faith in Christ truly enter the waters of Christian baptism. Only then can we be baptized in such a way that we can symbolically share in the death of Christ as we go below the water and as we come up from that water, know in our hearts that we too will be raised just as Jesus was. As we are now learning that Jesus' ministry included baptism, let's jump ahead a few verses And while you're saving your spot, go to chapter 4, verse 1. Just a short distance. Chapter 4, verse 1. And at chapter 4, verse 1, we read this. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact... It was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, meaning he learned that the Pharisees knew he was increasing in popularity, Jesus was increasing in popularity, Jesus left Judea and went back once more to the north, to Galilee. There are three details mentioned here that I'd like to briefly highlight. And that's because these will help us to better understand the verses we're examining today. First, the baptism of Jesus was not done by him personally, but by his disciples. We're not told why, that is. But one commentator suggests a possible explanation. He says this might have been done to avoid pride in the early church. He says, imagine if some of the new believers in the first century church said something like this. I was baptized by Jesus, but you were only baptized by Thomas. Right? We human beings are very competitive. The second detail that we want to notice is that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. That's an important detail. It is this fact that Jesus is gaining more disciples and he's baptizing more followers than John, which causes John's disciples to react with jealous competition. The third detail is that although Jesus has relocated from Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, into the countryside, the Pharisees are continuing to keep a close and suspicious eye on him. And why is that? Because they see Jesus as a competitor and are threatened by their potential loss of followers. 
But we know the Pharisees are so threatened by Jesus, they will soon come to the point when they seek to eliminate the competition. They want to kill him. That is why, even at this early stage in Jesus' ministry, he will go north to avoid stirring up their anger. He'll go back to Galilee. Why? Because it's not yet his time. Let's go back, please, to chapter 3 and go now to verse 23, where John the Baptist re-enters the story. When we first met John, back in chapter 2, he was baptizing in the Judean wilderness on the far side of the Jordan. But here we learn that John has moved to a new location. Let's look at verse 23. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. The narrative shifts from Jesus over to John. And John is described as also baptizing. That word also is important. It tells us that Jesus and John were both conducting a baptizing ministry at the same time. And it is this detail that sets the scene for the objection of John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, who don't like the fact they've got a competitor. We're told that John's ministry has moved to Anon near Salim. The first place name, Anon, means spring, as in a spring of water that comes out of the ground. And that's a fitting name because we're told soon after that there was what? Much water there. The second place name, Salim, is an alternative spelling of Salem, both of which mean peace. And so as John is baptizing at Anon near Salim, he's, he's baptizing at a place that is a spring near peace. Boy, that sounds like a tranquil oasis. But his peaceful place will soon be disrupted by debate and a competitive spirit. We do not know the pri- precise location of Anon near Salim, But two possible sites have been suggested by biblical archaeologists. And it's important for us to know that both sites, both possible sites, are located in Samaria. Samaria was in the central region of Israel. And it lays between Judea to the south and Galilee to the north. We do not know the exact reason why John moved to this new location, but a possible reason may be the religious leaders who were coming out to his first site from Jerusalem were becoming increasingly combative at John's fiery preaching, and so therefore John relocates to the Samaritan region further north. Because the Samaritans had for many generations intermarried with the Gentiles, 
the southern Jews and even some of the northern Jews shunned the Samaritans. And therefore, John may have relocated to Samaria because he thought that these, these uh, religious leaders from Jerusalem would be more reluctant to confront him in Samaria. As John is baptizing at this new location, Anon, meaning spring, we are told that they, meaning the common people, came and were baptized. Now, the verb tense of the Greek verb came is a continuous verb. And so what that means is the people were continuously coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. Put a pin in that because it'll come back later. But now that raises a question. If Jesus had arrived and had... Jesus has already arrived and begun his ministry, and Jesus' ministry includes baptism. Why is John still baptizing? I suggest the answer is that the assignment that God gave to John has not changed. He was sent to prepare the people to meet their king, and so long as John was able to do that, he would persevere in his ministry to prepare people to, he would go before the king to prepare people to meet their Lord. In verse 24, we find an editorial comment. The author tells us that John the Baptist had not yet been thrown in prison. What is strange about this announcement is that our author, John the Apostle, has made no previous mention about John's imprisonment. And in the pages ahead, there will be no report about this imprisonment. What that tells us is that John the Apostle expected his readers to already know about John's arrest while they were reading his gospel. As we discussed some weeks ago, the Gospel of John was the last of the four Gospels to be written. In fact, John wrote his Gospel approximately 90 AD. That is about 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. During that time, most of the churches had already received the three synoptic Gospels and were familiar with their content. And so part of John's goal, John the Apostle, part of his goal in writing this gospel is not to repeat the material that's already been covered. Instead, he's attempting, or he succeeds, at filling in many of the gaps that the other writers didn't cover. And that is especially true for the early years of Jesus' ministry. You know what? The material in the first five chapters of John are completely unique to John. This material will not be found in the other gospel accounts. Only John tells us about the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned the water into wine. It is only in the gospel of John do we learn of Christ's meeting with the Sanhedrin member, Nicodemus.
And it is only in John's gospel that we learn that Jesus' ministry also included baptism. And it is that detail that sets up what follows. Let's go to verse 25, please. Then there arose a dispute. There arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, in your first location, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. We're told that a dispute arises. But before we consider the matter that's under dispute, let's notice, as in all disputes, there are two parties that are engaged in this dispute. On one side, we have John's disciples, and on the other, the Jews. Some translations indicate that it is a certain Jew, meaning one Jew. As we hear the other side described as a Jew or the Jews, let's bear in mind that John's disciples are also Jews. Even if they have believed in Jesus through the preaching of John the Baptist, they are still Jews according to their ethnicity. And so to describe the other party as Jews seems strange. But not if we remember that this is the term that John the Apostle will use throughout his gospel to refer to those who are members of the religious establishment. He will refer to the Pharisees, to the Sanhedrin as the Jews, those who are in the religious establishment. And it is this term, the Jews, which is largely reserved for those who are opposed to anybody, especially Jesus, who poses a threat to their power and authority. Let's consider now the matter at hand. The dispute is about purification. Some translations have a ceremonial washing. Before engaging in any sacred act, such as entering the temple, it was necessary to first perform a procedure to remove ceremonial uncleanness. One needed to wash before appearing before God. This type of ceremony, this purification ceremony, would not have been viewed as controversial either to John's disciples or to those on the opposing side. But there were areas related to baptism that were controversial to the visiting Jews, who presumably were the ones who started this dispute. The cleansing, the kind of purification that John offered was a baptism by immersion, completely under the water. This type of cleansing, a baptism by immersion, was typically reserved only for Gentiles. When a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, they were baptized. 
This baptism going under the water and coming back up was a clear picture of a transition, a before and after. But John was not baptizing Gentiles. He's baptizing Jews. And that certainly would have been objectionable to some Jews, especially if they were part of the religious establishment, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. But whatever this debate was about, as it pertained to John's baptism, it seems to have sparked an even more serious concern from the perspective of John's disciples. Because as we will see now, as they come to John, they don't ask him about the issue they were just debating. Instead, they have another, though related issue, they want to bring to John. Let's go look at verse 26, please. Verse 26. And they, his disciples, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, you're in your first location, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John's disciples come to John not to talk about purification. They don't come to him to talk about the practice of baptism. They are concerned that someone else is baptizing now, namely Jesus. And they say to him, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. The first thing I'd like us to notice is their use of exaggeration. Did you catch that? They use the word all. All are coming to him. Now, just a few verses ago, we stuck a pin in this, a few verses ago, we were told that people were coming continuously to John for his baptism. And yet, with a, with, with a sort of childish exaggeration, his, John's disciples announced, everybody's going to him. All are coming to him. This is the kind of exaggeration that comes from a place of jealousy. They're thinking something is very unfair about all this. From, this is something that comes from someone who thinks they're falling behind in the competition. Let's go back to the beginning of verse 26 because there's more to discover here. They come to John and they say, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing. While they address John with the title of rabbi, notice how they refer to Jesus. They don't refer to him by name, do they? They say, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, he is baptizing. Are they so jealous of Jesus that they refuse to even utter his name? Perhaps. Seems that way. And that seems further evident by their emphatic comparison they make between him and you, John. Here's what they say. He who was with you, John, beyond the Jordan, he is baptizing. He who was with you, you who were the first to introduce this whole baptizing ministry thing, now he's gone off and started his own franchise. He's baptizing. Now, I need to remind you of a point that was made several weeks ago. 
and it concerns a cultural expectation at the time. This is the cultural expectation. The person who came first was considered to be in a superior position. And this expectation continues today. When two people are on a job, it is usually the person who was there first who is said to have what? Seniority, right? And that person with seniority is often put in a position of leadership. They are the supervisor or the foreman. This is what John's disciples expected. John, you came first. You should be in charge. John started this baptism ministry, and what's more, who baptized Jesus? John did. John, you should be in charge. You should be the superior position. And so now they're concerned, they're annoyed, because Jesus has gone out and started his own baptizing ministry. In their eyes, that was bad enough. But as we've already seen, what comes next is the final straw for them. Everyone's going to him. We're losing business. We're falling into second place. John, something's got to be done. We need a new program. We need a new way to attract disciples. Now, in terms of this cultural idea that the person who comes first is in the superior position, John's already addressed that, and he's dismissed it as, as wrong. Let's quickly see what John has already said about this. While we're saving our place, let's look at John chapter 1, verse 15. We're going back to John chapter 1, verse 15, some material we've already covered, but let's quickly review it. We're going back to John's original spot on the far side of the Jordan. And it was here on the, on, uh, at the Jordan where Jesus came and John announced, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look, please, at chapter 1, verse 15. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me. And by preferred before me, he means he ranks above me. He's in the number one position. Why? Because he was before me. John's point here is that although the ministry of Jesus came after John's ministry chronologically, the ministry of Jesus has always been first and above all. And let's remember why that is so. It is because Jesus was long before John even existed. The very first line of this gospel made that abundantly clear when we read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. There was never a time when he was not God, and therefore he is forever first, and therefore is to be forever lifted up and forever exalted. While we are in chapter 1, let's also be reminded of John's words at 1.19. While you're in chapter 1, please look at chapter 1, verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony. Remember what John did? He came as a witness, right? Here's his testimony. He gave his testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. 
He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. John has already declared before the religious leaders, he's declared before his own disciples, who he is not. He made it clear to all, he is not the Christ. In the verses that we are considering today, John will further explain who he is. He's made clear who he is not. He will further explain who he is. Let's go back to chapter 3 and verse 27 as we see now the first part of John's response. John the Apostle, John the, John the Baptist. Verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. The key words are there, are from heaven. The main point of John's words, here and in what follows, is that it is always necessary that he, his disciples, and us always maintain a heavenly perspective. His disciples were clearly demonstrating a worldly perspective. Even though they are engaged in the work of God, they're doing so in a worldly way because they think they are engaged in a competition in which whoever has the most followers wins. They want John to have more followers. Listen, this is a trap. This competition for more followers, this is a trap that churches can fall into also, to be in a competition with other churches. Here's a possible sign that a church has a competitive spirit. If a church is selling mugs and T-shirts with their church name on it, that's a possible sign they are showing a competitive spirit. The question that we all need to ask ourselves, every Christian needs to ask ourselves, are we selling our church or are we giving away the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we selling our church or are we giving away the gospel of Jesus Christ? We cannot be in a position where we're saying, hooray for us, we're the best. Buy our t-shirt, buy our mug. No, we got to give away the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is crucial that Christ's church, including this church, always have a heavenly perspective. And John has that perspective, a heavenly perspective. That is why he says, a man can only receive what is given to him from heaven. From heaven. His ministry would not be conducted according to the ways of the world, but only according to the will of God. And so as the Baptist continues, he will explain that his ministry will be conducted with a heavenly perspective. His ministry, and this, is the goal, this should be the goal of every Christian minister, is not to gain followers for oneself or to gain followers for one's church, but always to bring others to Christ. Let's continue to verse 28, where John now says this, You yourselves bear me witness... That I have said, I am not the Christ, but 
I have been sent before him. To explain his role from a heavenly perspective, he reminds them about what he has already declared publicly. He is not the Christ. And yet his disciples are attempting to lift him up, to exalt John, to think he, this is the important guy. And so he reminds him, he reminds them, he's not to be exalted. He's a messenger. He's only a herald, the one who goes before the king. John's opening words are emphatic. He says to them, you yourselves, you yourselves. You know, the word you would have been sufficient, but he says, you yourselves heard me say. He's effectively saying, you didn't hear these words secondhand. These words weren't reported to you. You yourselves heard them, and you heard them from me. Even though some people at that time thought that John the Baptist might be the Messiah, he publicly declared, I am not the Christ. Here's an important principle. If you hear anything today, let it be this. It is only when we confess who we are not that we can truly understand who we are. Only when we confess who we are not is when we can truly understand who we are. Let's think in terms of first principles and think back once again to the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden. What was the goal of Adam and Eve after being deceived by Satan? They wanted to be as God. They wanted to be as God. You see, it's part of our fallen nature such that each of us insists, I want to be my own God. I want to be number one. That is why we are so easily disappointed, and it's why we're angry when we don't get our way. But when we recognize that we are not God, I am not the Christ, each of us needs to say, I am not the Christ, that is when we can accept who we truly are. And who are we? We're the servants of Christ. We are the servants of Christ. Is that your desire? To be a servant of Christ? John now explains his relationship with Jesus. And what is most notable is that while he is indeed a servant, John is also a friend, just as we are. We are servants and friends of Jesus. And as a friend, he has no reason to be jealous of Jesus. Instead, he will tell us, John, that every follower that Jesus gains only brings John greater joy. Look, please, at verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John explains his relationship with Jesus by means of an analogy. He uses an illustration drawn from first century wedding customs. John compares himself to the friend of the groom. This is sim the friend of the groom is similar to what we would call the best man today. But unlike our modern best man, 
whose only real responsibility is to make a speech at the wedding, right? To raise a glass, to make a toast. That's really the only role of the best man. In John's day, the friend of the groom had many important responsibilities. The friend of the groom handled many of the necessary arrangements to prepare in advance for that sacred joining of the bride and the groom. From our perspective, it is also important to know that while the friend of the groom performed many tasks for the groom, from our perspective, it is also important for us to know that the friend of the groom, in Hebrew, the shoshpin, also coordinated many details in getting the bride ready. The reason that is important from our perspective is because in the New Testament, the bride represents the church. And isn't that the role that God gave to John the Baptist to make a people ready for Christ? We know that the bride had her own female attendants, but it was the friend of the groom who oversaw those female attendants. And as those female attendants readied the bride, the shoshpin, the friend of the groom, made sure that the female attendants dressed her for the wedding in her fine linen garments. They made sure that the female attendants escorted the bride from her father's house to her new house where the wedding ceremony would occur and after would be followed by the wedding feast. But, listen, before those things were done, the bride needed to be washed, ceremonially washed, not cleansed of dirt, but cleansed for purity, purified because this was a sacred rite of marriage. And so the connection between John's baptism to prepare the bride of Christ is impossible to miss. If we look more closely at the beginning of verse 29, John says this, beginning at 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. Notice the word has. That word there is literally hold. The church is Christ's to have and to hold. The church is the bride of Christ, and the church belongs only to him. The church belongs only to him and to no one else. The church is not some person's church, pastor this or pastor that. It's not his church. It's Christ's church. John goes on to say, but the friend of the bridegroom stands. The friend of the bridegroom stands, that is next to the groom in support, and he hears him. That is, he hears him taking his wife. And quote, the, the friend rejoices greatly. You see, the friend doesn't engage in jealousy or in competition when the groom is united to the bride. 
The, the friend doesn't compete. He, he doesn't get jealous. He rejoices for the groom. The job of the friend, which is the job of John the Baptist, which is the job of every Christian minister, is to bring the bride, his Christ, to bring the bride, the church, to Christ. The friend of the groom must step aside in favor of the groom to make sure that Jesus always gets the spotlight. Always gets the spotlight. Jesus himself is to be exhausted, exalted, no other. In our culture, who's usually the center of attention at a wedding? The bride. But in this illustration, it's not the bride who's the center of attention, not the bride who is the, uh, in the spotlight. It's not the, certainly not the friend of the groom. It is the groom who is in the spotlight, who is the center of attention. And why is that? Because the groom is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when John stands with Christ alongside of him and hears the Lord's voice saying to the bride, come unto me, be joined to me. John says this causes him to rejoice greatly. In fact, John says, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And why is that? Because John has fulfilled the role to which he was called, to be a servant and to be a friend, to bring others to Christ. The jealousy and the competition of John's disciples was misplaced. It was inappropriate. Those who came to John for baptism didn't belong to John. They never did. They belong to Christ and Christ alone. And that is what leads John to say this finally at verse 30. He must increase. Jesus must increase while I decrease. While John will continue his work, the work that God gave him, and he will continue to do so just so long he is able, he will continually stand alongside and he will decrease in order to bring others to Christ so that Christ can increase. Notice the word must. He must increase. Again, we have another divine imperative. According to God, this is something that must happen. Jesus must increase. The commentator, Edward Klink, writes this. As surely as God requires that a person must be born again, and that the Son of Man must be lifted up, so too must Christ increase. We know, of course, that Jesus doesn't need to increase in power, in glory, or glory. He is all-powerful. He's all-glorious. He doesn't need to increase in that way. But he must increase in the sense that we must increasingly exalt him and lift him up in our hearts. Every day we've got to lift him up and exalt him. And when we do, we will know there's no place for competition in the church. Why? Because Jesus Christ has already won the victory. And all who believe in him will share in that victory for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray, help us to remember 
to do all things with a heavenly perspective, believing that whatever we do, we do it unto the Lord. Amen.